we're talking about grief on this week's episode, specifically related to the climate crisis. If you're struggling and need support, please check this week's show notes at DefenderRadio.com or in your podcast player to find links to crisis support and other mental health resources. We're all in this together and need each other to get through. Thank you. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Some days are hard. It feels like the world is falling apart. Forests are burning, ecosystems are breaking down, and hope can seem a long, long way away. But you're not alone in this feeling, and there are ways to manage and cope that not only support you, but can make for a healthier community and planet. Climate Grief, From Coping to Resilience and Action, is a new book from Dr. Shauna Weaver that dives into the realities of climate change, the grief so many of us are experiencing, and how that impacts our day-to-day lives. Importantly, Dr. Weaver shows how facing our grief is the first step towards making change for ourselves and for the planet. An experienced ecotherapist with advanced degrees, Dr. Weaver joins Defender Radio to share what led to this book, how grief is unique to everyone, and what tools we have to ensure we not only cope, but become resilient and lead fulfilling lives. Let's start at the beginning of all of this. Um, the book itself, you, you talk a bit about your experience and how you got to be at a point as a mental health professional focused on something like climate grief and nature connections and so on. Could you share a little bit about that? Just how you, you became Dr. Shauna Weaver uh, focusing on climate grief? Sure. Yeah, I think for me, it really it started for me when I was a kid myself. And I, I think I appreciated as a young adult truly how transformative moments are when we are kids, especially when adults think we're not paying attention or they they assume that an experience we're having is is sort of above our cognitive ability to remember and to understand the gravity of a situation. And I, I give a lot of credit to my parents for, I think, grasping uh, the importance of experience for me as a kid. And so growing up in the headwaters of the Great Lakes, I really saw a lot of exploitive things happening to this space that, that intuitively anyone who experiences it, I think, feels the importance of the Great Lakes. Um, and then we hear about the the economic importance of it and the value of it as, uh, you know, literally some of the only water on this planet we can consume and the natural beauty of it. And so I grew up and into understanding the importance of, of where I lived. And I, I left and came back and left and came back more times uh, than it might seem possible to get new apartment uh, leases. But, I've been there. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, 
I think it was a typical, you know, adolescent and young adult desire to, to see the rest of the world and then to come back understanding where you came from better. And so when I came back during my PhD program, I had this realization that I'm, I'm a person who knows this place so well because I'm from this place. And I'm a person who has knowledge about the importance of it uh, at a uh, higher, you know, research-based level. And, um, and so that, that was why I settled into realizing I need to talk about the grief that I feel about this place. And so going back to your question about how I be became that, all that stuff in the middle was working with kids and hearing from them that they were having similar thoughts that I had as a kid, you know, of course, kids are, we all evolve in the same way. So it shouldn't have been surprising to me that these 12 year olds were saying to me that they were experiencing climate grief. And of course their own words and in words we we had then that sort of got to this thing that we finally have words for now. And appreciating for their sake that, you know, we've got a responsibility they're not they're not blind to what is happening and more than ever of course we're handing over a disaster and as an 80s and 90s kid we got a disaster and finally they had the research to prove it but now we don't have an excuse anymore not to be doing something so that that was sort of what led me through uh, from being a kid to then working with kids and and balancing my own sense of anxiety and grief around climate change, seeing it in them and realizing, you know, they continue to be the, the voice for the thoughts and feelings that I had as a kid as we were just starting to um, to bring this to the surface with things like the ozone layer, uh, you know, th things like oil spills and that, that sort of stuff that was happening so much in the eighties and nineties that was forcing our attention on this. Yeah. And you, you speak about the concept of eco psychology, which I found very interesting. I, I, for one grew up very much in the suburbs with nature around, but it was always nature adjacent. Oh, look, there's nature over there to the side. Um, and as a highly allergic and asthmatic child, I did not spend a lot of time adventuring outdoors. So my connection to nature is, is came much later in life. And it still feels like a bit of a struggle for me to find that connection at time now living surrounded by concrete in uh, southern Ontario, Hamilton uh, specifically, which for American listeners is often compared to uh, Pittsburgh, I would say. It's a very industrial town, very blue collar. Um, and... As an adult now, there's this constant want and need for nature that I'm exploring, both through gardening and a horticulture program, but also in therapy settings. So I found it interesting to read about eco-psychology, and I also noted that in the 1960s is, is when you write that it really started to evolve or, or become a thing. That's the same time when a lot of new ecosystem planning also changed. So that's when... Um, 
Ooh, I just read about this uh, person. I want to say Ian McHaig, something along those lines, developed some new planning models for sustainable land use and ecosystem-centric uses. So it's interesting that it was in the 1960s a lot of this started, but then those of us who have grown up in the 80s and 90s with sort of these environmental disasters becoming commonplace, that we're now really seeing the impact of it, I think, particularly in urban areas. Um, is eco-psychology something that is accessible at this point, or is it still a bit of a, a specialization off to the side, meaning someone like yourself and this book is sort of the, perhaps a guide for others entering into that concept? Mm, that's a great question. I studied eco-psychology um, during during my PhD program, during my master's program. Uh, I, so I... I got a master's degree in psychology and then in school counseling. And, and during that, I brought up that what I wanted to do was something like eco-psychology in, in whatever phrase I used and was told by, by my professors that that's just not really a, a thing. And yeah. that felt so obviously wrong to me. And around that time, Richard Louvre was writing about Last Child in the Woods and, and the concept of being outside and the importance of connection to nature in whatever way that looks like, urban, suburban, rural settings. Of course, it's easier to imagine a rural kid being out in the woods and having that relationship, um, but it is awesome to see that a lot of urban planning in many cities across the world uh, is is highlighting some aspect of of nature and you know, Central Park in New York City is is a great example of how yeah. much we prize our nature spaces regardless of size and quality. Uh, we we really do that that comes naturally. So I think while of course a trained eco psychologist will have will have their their set of practices that they can use will have access to the, you know, different language that they can use with clients. It is still accessible in the sense that we are from nature. We are natural beings. Every being around us is also, and, you know, we don't need to be taught how to be ourselves if we have, if we have the space and time to explore it on our own or with a therapist who's just open to that idea therapists um i i hope all are this way are really good at meeting clients where they're at and figuring out what they need and if therapists can't offer what they need then finding someone who can and so there there i'm sure are many places around the world where there's not a therapist in the city who has heard of eco-psychology or has ever done eco-therapy, but there are plenty of resources out there for therapists to uh, to find. And especially now, that is a good thing about this Zoom world we live in with a lot of online therapy happening, is there are eco-psychologists who do a lot of therapy online. Um, and there are, there are exercises and ideas out there for for clients and therapists to find to explore mm -hmm. it's great it's it's um 
it, it really does speak to human experience and existence. And I know there's, I, I can't cite any of it, but I am aware there is a great deal of research now that shows we have a very uh, um, visceral or a, a physiological reaction to being in nature and it, it, its impact on stress, hormones and anxieties and all of these other things. It's uh, incredible what an hour around the trees will do for your mood sometimes as well, despite how horrible everything may seem. And that comes from very personal experience. Um, I'm a very happy annual member of the Royal Botanical Gardens, and they've got a uh, converted open surface mine into a massive park that's uh it's designed with a lot of japanese influence so it's really lovely and immersive to just go and forget you're in the middle of a city and be around nature sounds for half an hour and it just you can just feel the the breathing is easier and your back loosens a little and you know like you said we're from nature we're a part of nature to think otherwise is uh folly at this point um, which also speaks to why, and I think this is still somewhat new, but it's not surprising. Um, there's a lot of anxiety around the climate and we're going to get into the grief, but I think starting with the anxiety is important. Uh, again, as someone who's, whose life has been defined by living with anxiety at times, it can be so insanely overwhelming to be just besieged with information and the scope of the problems there they are systemic global issues with components that individually are extremely difficult to engage um to me it seems very obvious that there's anxiety related to that but it has there been resistance or does it take a little bit of explanation for some folks to accept you're feeling anxiety about the climate and about the environment and the world around you in that way you know I'm sure I, I get to live in this little vacuum that's created by people self-selecting into conversations with me, which <laughs> I'm fine with. So, uh, <laughs> but, but really when, when I talk about, about the book and that anxiety piece and the worry that people have, or I highlight the worry that students have always communicated with me, people people know, you know, it's, it's like, you don't have to explain what anxiety feels like because who doesn't feel that. And yeah. so when we talk about climate anxiety, everybody, even people who are still in deep denial about what climate change really means for us, they, they have those moments of, yeah, I, I remember seeing something happening in my hometown. I remember experiencing uh, forest fire smoke. I remember um, that there used to be a lot more snow in January mm -hmm. around here and now there's not. And so people really are processing that and, and it's far more common for people to respond to me about the book with their worries. And I think they respond more quickly about their worries for the future than about their grief and the depression about um, where we're at now, if that makes yeah. sense. Like we're, we're all very attuned to the future and to planning for the future and to these adult worries about, will there be an insurance company for the house that I want to buy in the region I was hoping to move to? And so we're seeing all of those those climate migrations happening among people 
already, even among the people who seem not to be emotionally impacted or who seem like they're not talking about it anyway, or they're even not aware, but they, they clearly are. If we're making huge decisions about uprooting our lives, about not having kids when we had planned to, about, um, you know, how we're investing our money, clearly this is hitting us at a, a deeply anxious level. And, and it's happening to a lot more people than, than those who are willing to have chats about it. Yeah. And that's, that, that's always got to be a difficult reality in your field of, um, with what frequency are people being open and honest? Um, and you, you hear from people who want to be open and honest. And even within that, I imagine there are people who are not fully open and honest because it can be hard to do, especially if you've been trained, uh, as many of us have by our parents, uh, to not be open and honest about how you feel and what's going on around you. Um, Boy. and it, it's interesting too that you speak about how people are more in tune with the anxiety than they are perhaps with the depression or grief. And I wonder if part of that is, again, speaking to my experience, anxiety is the the fire alarm in the house, the high screeching beep that you cannot ignore, whereas the depression and grief are the low thrums that come in the silences between those things, where you just feel unable to do anything and it's just i just want to sit and not move and not think and not care um so it i guess it 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 sort of it does make sense that folks are more aligned with that and i hear from people too who experience the anxiety in interesting ways um a guilt of replacing an electronic device that is broken uh it clearly no longer works cannot be repaired they've done the effort so they have to get a new phone or they have to get a new tv and there's this immense guilt that comes along with that um and i think in the good place amusingly a television show they did a good job of exploring it's very hard to always make good choices in modern society because nothing is free and as you note, again, this this comes up in the book and is talked about with some frequency is the, the Earth's carrying capacity, our use of resources and so on. We've we've gone beyond uh, a lot of those limits. Um, so it it's it's very difficult to exist in society right now and not have a negative impact on the world around you, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that play a lot into it for uh, for your experience, research, clients, et cetera? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so much there. I love The Good Place, first of all. Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. Great show. Great show. Highly recommend. And um, and I, I agree. I, I love the way that show grapples with uh, this impossibility to always do all good. Mm-hmm. And the guilt and anxiety people feel. And the, that action-focused decision-making I think really goes to show what you were saying about how we're really trained not to be very in tune with our emotions. It is such a problem in this world for uh, people who, who grew up as, as presenting males, especially uh, in, in our Western culture of being unallowed to have feelings and to react to things with anything besides anger and that is such a sad piece of this because we are we are 
stuck, uh, not really being able to respond to much of anything going on in our world because anger is feels like an action-based thing that we get to do and then it solves something. But that's absolutely not what anger does. Anger in our in our emotions and in our body helps to let us know it's part of the fire alarm system too, right? It lets us know that something it doesn't isn't working for us or feels really unsafe. Um, and it it does cause us to then feel motivated for action. However, it can really only inform that action is needed. It cannot be in itself the action because then we see, I mean, there's examples all over the world this week about the damaging impact of anger when it's mm. not tethered to critical thinking, when it's not tethered to love and community. And so it's it's really tragic. It's tragic that we feel motivated for some sort of action because we feel anxious and we feel anger but we don't have the opportunity to process all, all of it, where the anger is coming from. That's one of the most important things is to figure out the source and then what does it mean to actually solve the problem, not to react and then therefore amplify a problem. And so when we're looking at, at our anxiety and feeling motivated to move and motivated to do something to to yeah, to reduce our footstep, um, our footprint on on this, our impact on the planet, but we don't really know what that means or looks like because we we aren't sitting in the whole picture, and that's yep. what I really wanted to get to with the book was the importance of slowing down. One of the best, most anti-capitalist, most pro-sustainability, most pro-mentally healthy things that we can do for ourselves is to slow down and give ourselves the time and space to understand. And whether that's for conversation with people who have the knowledge we're looking for, or if it's the chance to, to read and feel or go to therapy or sleep and the effects that nature have has on us on our bodies that you know the reduction of of um, stress hormones and and reduction of blood pressure and increase of of all of the good chemicals we need in our brain all of that that all happens when we slow down and take care of our natural bodies and we don't do that enough and we're, we put so much stress on ourselves and expectation to respond to this problem in the, the same ways that have gotten us into the problem. And, you know, what, what can we buy to fix it? What can we build to fix it? What can we tear down? Like, yeah, there are solutions in there, but first of all, it's making sure that we as a individual human is healthy enough to to think at that next step. And there's a lot we can do in our own bodies that is so sustainable um, that that helps us move better and be better and 
and then resonate that health out into the world. And I think that's, that's something that's really important about dealing with both anxiety and grief is slowing down enough so that you've got your own, your own, like your body house, your own house is clean. And if we all did that, can you imagine just the impact of naturally reduced, uh, the influence on the world via buying less, via spending less time numbing, spending less time distracting, spending less money doing all of those things. And it's it's without the intent of doing that and with yeah. instead the intent of personal wellness. And it's the intentional aspect of that, I think, is so important and, and difficult sometimes to explore, um, particularly when people are out of capacity or their window is closed or their spoons are gone, their buckets are full, whichever one of the analogies we want to use. When when you're out of gas, it's hard to step back and go, I need to look inward. It's very easy to go, someone is to blame for this and I'm going to get them, which I think goes into the evolutionary psychology field, which uh, is also a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, uh, before we dive, though, into the grief aspect of it, there's an interesting reality, I don't know, an interesting concept emerging, I have found, of anger in our world, specifically in the Western world right now. Uh, the U.S. has some different issues than us in Canada, but there are similar issues. And there's actually a strategic polling company, Polera, up here doing a rage index now. Uh, and trying to measure how Canadians are feeling in terms of rage and anger about things. And they're saying it's climbing. And of course, you know, they, the, the topics are federal government, provincial government, the economy, your financial situation, changes happening in Canada, the latest stories and news. So things that are going to make you angry. But, um, you know, my personal anecdotal view is that people are more angry and are less willing or able to slow down and have conversation, as you've said. Do you think that's in part, I mean, there's obviously a lot of divisive issues right now in our world. Uh, and as you know, this week has been horrific uh, with violence uh, between Gaza and Israel um, and Ukraine and Russia and the regular violence we see in North America on a weekly basis. Um, but could some of the anger that that reduced tolerance be related to the climate anxieties and grief, do you think? That's a really good point. And I think it's I think it's really a good place to look, partly thinking through ourselves as animals, of course. Mm -hmm. And when we look at nature and when resources begin depleting or the climate, the climate is changing and, and forcing animals to migrate somewhere new or or be displaced. There's a lot more conflict in the wild world. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, we being formerly wild or still wild or however we define ourselves as humans, uh, we are animals and, and we respond in the same way that we'll see other mammals and other creatures doing when we experience um a, a shortage of something when we experience a loss of something that we think we need for our survival. Um, and certainly when we actually experience loss uh, for something we need for our survival, um, we respond and cause conflict. And I think an important piece 
to think about with anger. And that is how much of our anger comes out of a fear of losing control versus actually losing control versus whether that it is control we truly need uh, to do well. I think greed and hoarding of resources, hoarding of money, focusing on becoming wealthy, focusing on anything pro-capitalist, that all comes down to a sense of self-preservation and a worry that we don't have everything we need. And for most people in the Western world who are so focused on that, we actually have everything we need and we're not at risk in in an immediate sense. And, you know, I was, uh, yesterday I toured a, a food shelf and heard from the director of the food shelf that there's plenty of food in the region. We have every bit of food we need for everyone to be fed. The issue is the greed at the top and an unwillingness for grocery store chains, for example, to give away fruit before it goes bad. Yep. Um, and, you know, if things, things that just come back to an unnecessary level of control. And anger often comes out of when we feel a perceived loss of control. And that rage happens because we think there's nothing else we can do. And the only thing we can do is to voice our frustration. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes out in, in anger and that comes out of fear. And so a big task for us and as we evolve in our mental health is, is to understand how to hold fear and love to understand how to hold anger and loss of control and and dig deeper into the actual meaning around it i think anger has a place and i i don't think it in itself is is a bad emotion for us it's a big part of our survival but when we stop there and we get stuck there that's when we get into trouble yeah, it's the the sitting with the uncomfortable feelings that we're all so good at that I have not spent most of my savings on trying to figure out. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a very uh, important point, and I think it then plays into this concept of grief. Um, and uh, before we like I'm talking about grief, for me, it's it's been a very real thing. The last two and a half years, my father died. Um, my dog who was with me for 12 years died, uh, lost a group of friends. We had a pandemic, uh, parent moved away, all of like (laughs) everything changed and Mm -hmm. it is difficult to sit in. And something you said earlier too, was the want to distract or numb. And that is difficult, I think, to explain the concept, or it was it was difficult for me to accept, I should praise, the concept of sitting in that discomfort. Uh, again, as someone who has lived with anxiety through their life in a very real way, discomfort is number one enemy, um, be it the intolerance of heat or sound or, or whatever other neurodivergence trigger got me um, up to... Uh, just the racing thoughts and all of that. So for me, the practice of sitting 
and allowing myself to feel those things is very, very difficult. And I think that's, as we get into the grief, you talk a lot about that in the book of this, this desire to hide from it or, or numb it or distract from it. Whereas we need to understand it and process it and exist with it. Um, but before we, we can really talk about that, I think climate grief, you know, and <laughs> I'm forcing you to define it. Um, I, I know there isn't, as you note, uh, necessarily a clear definition. The DSM isn't there yet. But uh, how do we sort of navigate what climate grief is with the, without mm -hmm. having a true definition or diagnosis at this point? Yeah, I think that climate grief, like any other grief, is the act of sitting with the truth. I think that that first stage, it's interesting, grief is sort of this thing that happens to us, we don't choose, but if we refuse to choose to see the truth, then we continue to live the lie of denial. And we're really good at finding ways to maintain denial around everything, climate change and, you know, everything we don't like. That's where, where a lot of addictions and, and poor coping mechanisms, all of that comes out of, it can come all along with all of grief, but, but the first stage of denial is, is really a place that we can get stuck in and stay in if we aren't willing to face the truth and yeah. courageous conversations around acknowledging what is true, you know, in our relationships or, um, in, in any, anything that we're working with as community, it is always fascinating to me. Every time I'm in that moment of needing to speak a truth or needing to hear a truth and the anxiety we feel before it, is so high and then as soon as the truth is out in the world it's it's like anxiety deflates um or at least some aspect of it and even when the truth is hard to hear and even if we grieve the past when we lived in a lie or when the reality was simply different there is something very freeing about moving through the process of grief because we are now living in truth. And so climate grief is our process of coping with the truth of our existence on this planet as a planet that is, however we, we want to define it as dying or as, um, you know, be becoming a place that will will not sustain life as we know it. Yep, I I, I have a, a punk song I like that explains that we're not going to kill the planet. We're just going to make it unlivable for us, and it's very upbeat and happy sounding. And somehow that makes me feel just the tiniest little bit better. Um, <laughs> but it's I I think finding those successes is part of all of that. Um, and grief is a, a giant it's it's not even necessarily an emotion but a process uh which mm -hmm. makes it even more confusing and the idea of and you've already noted this holding two dichotomous feelings at the same time feeling anger and love and sadness all in the same moment for the same reason is terrifying in some ways 
Um, for me, a tip that has helped is the anxiety, the fear, the the upset is not about the grief. It's about the loss. The grief is the brain processing that loss. It is the process of managing that loss and accepting that loss and moving through it. Um, and I, I feel that in some regards, that is important in this as well to identify that this isn't a thing we feel and we go for a run or we take a pill and we feel better about. It is an act of process that we all need to go through. And as you eloquently note, healing the planet starts with healing ourselves. Um, in terms of understanding that grief, is there a place for people to start? Um, you know, to and, and I think it's the, the overwhelming reality at times. I'm saying the word overwhelming a lot, I'm now realizing. Um, <laughs> it may be a theme. Uh, that just totally blew my train of thought too. Um, ADHD for the win. <laughs> yeah, the the practice for me that I I like to think about starting with yes. is naming where we're at. I think you know thinking through grief and and processing grief as an intentional practice. And sitting in difficult emotions. The reason it's hard for us to sit in grief is because we have to admit that uh, we don't control life. We have to admit our mortality. Mm. Uh, we have to admit things change without our consent. Yep. Um, relationships change. It's, you know, jobs and and of course the the very big reality of climate change that that change is so far out of our control and so absolutely overwhelming um and so enmeshed with our own survival and our own mortality that it's really hard to face and we don't we don't like death we don't like admitting that we age and we die and we um that that's all part of the process of living and and we've most people really struggle to sit in that. And so the practice that I recommend is saying out loud to ourselves, and it seems really silly and dumb, but it is amazing. It's the truth telling to ourselves that releases us from hiding from it. It's, you know, when I, uh, you know, for example, you're going through a, a breakup and you're dealing with those feelings those first few weeks of loneliness and sadness and missing them. And so what do we, what do we do? We either like hyperventilate over it. We, you know, talk for hours with our friends about what went wrong and how do I fix it? And I'm so angry at all of these things that we do in order to mask over just acknowledging to ourselves, I feel lonely or I feel sad. And to do that in the moments that we find ourselves anxious or uh, wondering where to start or wondering what it is we feel, give yourself the space to say it and say it out loud so that it comes into a different part of your brain. And it's the part of our brain that actually does construct solutions mm -hmm. that actually does integrate and use bilaterally our emotions and our, our logic and blends that together. And when we're not doing that, um, that's something 
like uh, in therapy, EMDR practice, a quick Google would be better than what I could say about it. Um, You know, that is what that's doing is we're practicing um, integrating our our two hemispheres and also the back of our brain, which is all of the emotion and the fear and the fight or flight and the uh, do something really fast, get rid of this thing that sucks so much. And then the front of our brain, that's more like, whoa, hold on. Like what is happening? Let me see the whole situation before we do something um, and make this worse. So we're, we're pulling all of that together when we practice pulling it all together. It doesn't do it by itself. And so starting a practice where we first note our starting point. This is how I feel. I feel really sad about the wetland down the road being paved. I feel, you know, all the things that come up from that then, naming it, naming it and seeing the truth. It's not so scary to sit in it once we acknowledge it's there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the ghost in our house. That's not so scary once it has a name. Once, you know, once, once a thing is out in the open, we no longer fear it. And I think that's, that's the best place for, for people who are wondering, like, how in the heck do I even think about moving through this? Where do I, where do I go? Um, And that is relevant too for people who are activists and people who are already in the throes of like doing what they can. Mm -hmm. Um, You've, you know, you're activists for for animals, for wildlife, for uh, anti-fracking, all the things, whatever it is that that people are activating around racial justice, social justice. uh, We too need to slow down and name what it is we feel. Um, we know what the anger's about and we know it needs to change on the outside in the world, but we may not be taking enough time to sit with um, how it is moving us on the inside. Um, and activism too is can be masking and can oh, be yeah. numbing. So. I think that's a, a fascinating li- line of thought and something that isn't talked a lot about within the advocacy circles is the concept of use that anger, use it to make change. And I think that can be helpful. As you said, anger can be motivating and inspiring and it can give you the energy you need to push through something difficult. But then you also need to find a way to release that anger safely and you need a way to come down from that anger because anger doesn't sustain and anger doesn't provide relief or release. Anger drives us to action Um, and one of the things that, again, uh, in my experience, someone with ADHD, anxiety, and working in advocacy with a background in journalism, is uh, downtime is very difficult. So it's not only don't distract yourself from the truth, but then distract yourself from the day sometimes and make space for that healing to begin. Uh, like it's create the time to confront it. Um, for me, you know, that's, uh, it comes in various ways. Sometimes it's the simple statement, as you said, of, uh, um, how I feel, or one of the ones I was taught is, uh, you know, my dad died. He didn't pass away. He didn't go away. He didn't move along. He died. And it hurts every time I say it a little bit, but mm-hmm. that's my brain trying to accept something that it doesn't want to accept. And by not saying the word died, I am not helping my brain accept that reality. 
Um, I quite enjoy the the five minute cry fest. Uh, put on the saddest song that was on a television show too. Um, put on the saddest song you can think of, and for five to ten minutes, a schedule just let everything you have out, um, and then put on happy music and go do something you love, because it is so easy to hang on to anger and grief and depression. Um, but to find ways to release it is, is so important. And you write, um, the uncertainties don't go away and ignoring them won't produce health or real contentment. Well-being comes by balancing stressors with sources of joy, inner turmoil, with a, se- a core sense of peace. Resilience is the ability to find this balance during difficult times, even as the urgency and existential stress of climate change hang over our heads, and to withstand and successfully adapt to life's challenges. So th- this is true emotionally. It's true in terms of infrastructure. Like, it's it's the whole shebang is resilience. Um, and I think that's very well stated. For folks who are in that place where they feel like, I'm already doing the things. I'm eating a plant-based diet. I, I volunteer or I work in advocacy. Um, folks like yourself who work to in service of others who are dealing with difficult things. Um, and again, anyone really who, you know, you go and you lay brick for a day and you're exhausted when you come home and you put on the news and it's terrible out in the world. Um, what are safe ways then to rest and recover and again, not necessarily distract yourself from the issues or the feelings, but to give yourself space for peace and joy and uh, if at all possible, serenity at times. Mm -hmm. Great question. Uh, I think getting to explore what works, using it, using your rest time as, as a maybe as as a time to reflect on what you loved doing as a little kid we don't change much you know if if you loved reading as a kid and you haven't given yourself to time to do that as an adult you're probably going to find it very renewing i think acts of nostalgia are are really good going to a place that you have loved at some other point in your life um, returning to childhood or returning to returning to a space, to an activity, to anything that enables you to be in the moment um, is really important for us. And taking time to to even remember what that is sometimes is a is a big task. But it's similar to in therapy, a common practice is to, you know, imagine a place that you feel safe, that you feel good, that you feel energized, whatever it is you're seeking and visualizing that space and then feeling the feelings that you have when you are in that place. And our periods of rest and our things that we choose to do, activities that um, that renew us and recharge us, it's, it's the same thing. It's what is that place? For me, it's... Um, for me, it's playing volleyball with friends in a bar league and sitting around and and having a drink after, um, and and just letting myself kind of be in a place where no one really cares about any, you know, or or our jobs and our politics and our whatever else doesn't matter. We're just in sand, moving our bodies. Um, and nobody there has a clue what I do or who I am or what I'm working on. And it's it's great. We 
we can find new ways to love other people when we are in new settings like that. Mm -hmm. And we can find uh, community among unlikely friends when we do things like that. And that's super important to not get stuck in um, a mirror house with our our friends and, and colleagues and activist friends who think the same way we do and only challenge us in, you know, <laughs> encouraging shame if we're not doing enough. Yeah. Um, and so getting out of that space into something entirely different. Um, I hope we never feel shame or blame for ourselves for doing that because it's a necessary thing to being healthy. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, there, there are some fantastic, um, activists in the animal rights space right now that are really advocating for um, for rest and rejuvenation for ourselves. And I think that's I think that's critical. Also going back to the anger piece, uh, we need it so that we don't feel angry. Um, I, I have struggled for a long time seeing activists justify anger as a great strategy or a a good thing, you know, this like hill to die on of, of our righteous anger and, um, anger is divisive. It's a safety mechanism for us, right. To move quickly, to get away from something that is not safe for us. And when we use it as a weapon, when we should be trying to connect, we can't anger does not connect it by design. Um, destroys and it by design disconnects. So uh, if we're feeling anger, that might be a really good sign for us that we absolutely need to unplug from what is causing that anger. Um, it, even if it is like just urgent sadness that we feel and then that anger is triggered because we're out of control, whatever it's coming from and no matter how justified the feeling um, it's a bad strategy for us to move through the world with. So uh, take that time to realize I need to find my safe space. I need to find my people who don't talk to me about this um, or, or who do in a really loving way. And I need to give my all of the chemicals in my brain that are firing too fast and too hard right now time to relax because it's flooding it's flooding your brain and your body with unsustainable um un unease unhealth yeah yeah it's i uh, i've got curling tonight where i get to go hang out with folks who have an interest that my my father was very passionate about and i am uh, uh, always trying to get out to comedy shows that my friends are in we have board game night every few weeks or role-playing game night every few weeks I volunteer as a big brother, uh, get in the garden. It's for me, it's, it's what are the things that make me feel good? And does my brain need a blast of good? Um, especially with the social aspect and you get into this and again, it's the evolutionary psychology of we evolved in these very small communities where everybody knew everybody and everybody had a role to play in helping the community. And I think finding ways to do that, to connect with a small community 
and feel valued and feel uh, as part of something in whatever way it may come. You get volleyball league, a rec curling league, art classes, uh, naturalist walks, whatever it is. When you find that way to connect with the community, find your people, it again, it's even if we just look basically at the science of it, it's allowing positive hormones into our body, which chase away the bad ones. Go for a run if you're feeling really tense. That's my go-to. I can run far further than I ever thought I'd be able to as a result, but Mm -hmm. it actually, it really helps. It's afterwards. It's all right. Come on, uh, get rid of the cortisol and bring in the dopamine and neuroepinephrine and all the other good stuff that's going to make me feel better. Uh, And then sometimes just having a giant bowl of popcorn uh, (laughs) will do the trick. But it's, it is, it's finding that and I think giving ourselves the patience for it. Uh, that has been my greatest struggle of all is the patience moving through grief and moving through depression, moving through anything else, is that it's going to get better even if it doesn't feel like it right now. Um, and I think, you know, that's a, a, to, to bring us all the way around. In the book, you talk a lot about hope and the the facing what a defeatist belief system means um, and making change at the local level and making change in ways that have that impact at a bigger policy level. I think a great one is plant-based eating. Um, You can literally shop local, you can make your own foods, you can uh, uh, stick it to some of the big corporations if you want. Uh, There's a lot of ways to do it, and it's all better for land use and the planet long-term. So to me, that's an accessible way forward. Um, how, how important is it for people to find that hope that you talk about, whether it's a burning flame like an Olympic torch or the darkest, saddest little candle in the corner of a dark, drippy basement with weird echo sounds? <laughs> I think it's hope is is an intentional thing that we have to create. We choose it. Um we think it's a feeling that that is there and, oh, we're lucky, I feel hopeful, or, oh, I, I just don't, so uh, I don't know how I could. It's uh, unfortunately not, or fortunately, not that. It's, it's something that we actively choose, just like we're actively choosing to do the things that, that bring us a healthier, better balanced life. Um, and, and, and I think we do it through doing the activities that sig- I think they 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 signal to our bodies, to our brains, and to our surroundings uh, what our intention is. And you know, you could go really wooey in how you describe or feel about manifesting, or you could go really scientific into um, truly you know, provable, um, differences between, um, how, how we get, uh, results through growth mindset versus fixed mindset, how we get results, uh, through when we assume in our brain, we're going to succeed or we're going to fail. Um, that that's all that's stuff that we, we can see, um, through research. So, um, regardless of, of where anybody lands on that, spectrum or, or web of perspective, hope does something in a wooey way, in a scientific way, in a physiological way um, to create 
at least in our immediate surrounding, the thing that we want to have happen. So I shop pretty much 100% at my local co-op because the old ladies who work there are adorable and the food is like better vetted than I have time to do myself in terms of yep. the companies. And, and I do think that organic food is more important for me to put in my body, even if it's more expensive as I do think I'm probably doing something better for myself and the planet. Um, and so, so things like that, that I've filled my life with things that are controllable for me, very feasible, um, for me in in the privileged place that I live in the situation I'm in, um, in the walking my dog in the, the area wilderness, because I get to see and feel and believe that the world is still good and ticking when the, the black bears around eating the fruit and, you know, doing his black bear thing and all, all of those things that are just, when I surround myself with it, I feel more hopeful when I do the action that I wish everybody did, um, I am exemplifying it's possible. Um, it's, it's, it's possibleness. It's, it's feasibility for other people. Um, and I'm, I'm living the life that I, I, I wish to see for everybody. And, uh, that is creating hope when I, when I choose not to, uh, I feel it. And, mm -hmm then I, I have to take the responsibility to, to recreate it for myself. Um, and then the, the hopeful feeling is a result of good behavior. Um, you know, whatever it is you're, you're trying to do in order to, to feel that. Um, so I think it is really important and I'd rather in anything in life, right? Like we'd rather go down trying for the thing we really wanted than to have not tried at all. And hopefully we don't have to experience in our lifetime the extreme of that with climate change. And uh, we are less likely to, if more and more of us do even anything to, to delay long enough so that we can come up with better solutions. I want to thank Dr. Weaver for all of her time in this interview and hope everyone will go out and get a copy of Climate Grief, From Coping to Resilience and Action. It's a book I believe we all need these days and has helped me personally manage ongoing grief with a greater understanding and compassion for myself. Links to Dr. Weaver's website, social media channels, and book sales are available in this episode's show notes in your podcast player and at DefenderRadio.com. You can connect with me on Instagram at Howie Michael or Facebook on the Defender Radio podcast page and find out more about what's coming up for Defender Radio in the Switch, important updates from the Fur Bears, and more. Thank you for listening. This is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Defender.